welcome to everyone here in the auditorium and in the venue. Thank you to Mary and Brent for your reading in the auditorium and for Joe, your reading in the venue. So good to be with you today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free Church. If we haven't met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. If you're a newcomer here today, we welcome you and so grateful that you chose to worship with us this morning. We know there are many places you could go on Sunday morning, many different things you could do, but we pray that you would have an opportunity to connect with the God who loves you today and connect with a few others. Wherever you are, whatever your background, whatever your church experience or non-experience, we are so, so glad that you're here. If you're a newcomer, we have uh, gifts for you out at the information table, just our way of saying thanks for joining us for worship today. We promise we won't overwhelm your phone with uh, phone calls, your email, with spam, but if you want to introduce yourself to us and bring that out to, uh, use the tear-off portion on your, uh, you know, your handout and bring that out to the information table, we'd love to give a gift to you just to say thanks for coming today. We are uh, savoring Christmas together, and we're in the fourth of a five-part series on uh, this idea of savoring Christmas, kind of slowing down and enjoying the season. How's it going? Hear a few chuckles. About as well as it is at my house. <laughs> now, we've actually done better this year than we do many years. We haven't hit the target completely, but it's interesting. You hit the target more when you aim at the target, don't you? That's the nature of the spiritual life, too. You aim at a target, and you're likely to hit it more frequently. So week one in this series, we talked about preparing the tree. And we use this simple tree, an elegant tree, as a metaphor for the kind of Christmas that we want. That it wouldn't be overwhelmed with tinsel and garland everywhere, but it would be a prepared, simple tree to reflect a simple Christmas. Christmas simplicity is a possibility. It's not an oxymoron, is it? It was in that original story that we just heard. Week two in this message series, while well, we talked about clearing the calendar a little bit, and that's particularly difficult to do, but some of us have done that. We've said no to many really, really good things in order to say yes to the greatest thing, in order to say yes to spending time with God and spending time with family and perhaps a few select others in order to be enriched this Christmas season with all of its glory. Then in week three of this series, Pastor Aaron Ferguson did a great job last Sunday as he led us on this beautiful idea of growing our Christmas peace as we welcome a stranger into our home. He talked about embracing the stranger as we consider the fact that Jesus and the first family were strangers in Bethlehem and an innkeeper brought them in, didn't he? An innkeeper brought Jesus and Mary and Joseph into their home and then Jesus went on to say, whatever we do for the least of these strangers, we do also for Jesus himself. And so we've been seeking to love the one this season and perhaps even bring someone into our home, maybe someone else from our church family who we know is lonely this time of year, or from our neighborhood or from our workplace, but to follow that beautiful model of the innkeeper who invited this family in when they were strangers. Today we're talking about stoking the fireplace. Stoking the fireplace of worship over these coming days. 
my little brother was probably four years old. His name is Ryan, and wonderful little brother. And he was helping mom and dad out in the kitchen. And I talked with my mom about this story this week. And as the story goes, they were uh, baking some different things. And Ryan was helping out. And he was responsible for putting the cinnamon raisin toast in the toaster oven. And he did that. And he was starting to get hungry. He was smelling that cooked cinnamon and how delicious it would be. And so he decided the cinnamon toast was done and it was time to go get it. And so he went up to that toaster oven as a four-year-old and he decided to grab that toast out of it. And you know what happened. He got burned all over his hand, all over his arm as a little four-year-old. And he went to the hospital and was treated for very serious burns and came home with a soft cast. And we have a photograph of him um, that uh, I'm not going to show this morning out of respect for my dear mother. Because it has a cast on one hand and a cast on the other hand. Because on the other hand, he had a broken wrist. And my mom was worried that perhaps she would be reported to social services. She was not. She was a wonderful mother. <laughs> but he was unafraid of fire. And he ran toward that fire. And I'd like to laugh at him. But I, of course, did the same thing, as many boys do. I remember running toward the fire coming off the old-fashioned gas stove top. Because you see these blue flames and red and they're flickering and every boy loves fire. And so I ran toward that fire and I got some of that same burn on my arm and had to be treated at the hospital as well. We were an ER unit in the Boykin household. But you know, that's kind of how I tend to run toward Christmas. Fresh baked cookies. Beautiful prepared tree. Shiny presents underneath the tree. Lights all around the neighborhood. This is going to be awesome. Black Friday deals. And I run headlong toward Christmas. Unafraid. Unafraid of the heat. This year I've been taking it more seriously that I would slow down a little bit at this season and reflect a little bit more what this season is about. And as I've been doing so and really meditating on the birth story of Jesus from Matthew and from Luke, where we've been for, for the most part here on Sunday mornings in Luke, but then also John 1 and Revelation 1, thinking about Jesus coming back again a second time as well. Considering all of that, I've been stoked once again with a sense of awe at the glory of Christmas. And we run toward Christmas unafraid, I think, to our own detriment. Because a sense of fear, a sense of awe, a sense of amazement at this story is indeed a part of the Christmas narrative as well. And we are wise to have some apprehension, not to just reach our hand toward it and grab it but to consider the awe of this story let me just paint a portrait for you of what we see in the scriptures relative to awe of God worship of God in the first Christmas story it starts way back in Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, the great man of God, the prophet Isaiah, has an encounter well with the living God. And as he does so, his response is very, very simple. 
he says, Woe is me, for I am an unclean man, and I live amongst an unclean people. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I am ruined. He encounters the glory of God. He sees the amazing, awesome wonder of God, and he falls to his knees. And this is a great, great man of holiness, a great man of God, and he says, Woe is me. And it's not like false humility. It's not a um, religious hyperbole of some kind. This is how he really feels because he sees the greatness of God. Then the very next breath, the vision given to Isaiah continues and he utters the most outlandish prophecy of them all that sets the stage for the Christmas story. Very next page of the Bible, chapter 7 of Isaiah, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. This is the beginning of the Christmas story. Woe is me, I am ruined. Then a vision that says God's coming down. He's going to be called Emmanuel, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You fast forward 700 years far from that. The next episode in the Christmas story is the angels coming to Mary. In Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 28, and you'll see these passages up on the screen, or if you want to follow along with me in the Bible, you're most welcome to do that. Luke chapter 1, verse 28 through 30. The angel went to her, to Mary, and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you, Mary. What was Mary's response? She's greatly troubled. <laughs> you starting to see a theme? Mary was greatly troubled at his words. The Lord is with me? Ordinary teenage me? She was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This is even before the announcement that she's with child. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. I know you're greatly troubled. You're terrified. But do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Okay, uh, she's greatly troubled. She experiences uh, the glory of the Lord, at least in part. Her knees are knocking at this moment where she gets a vision of the heavenly host. And then you fast forward and you look at the key passage for this morning. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, the angels now appear to the shepherds. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them as well, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were, they were terrified. They're amazed. They're in awe. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. They were terrified. Now finally, the baby Jesus is born. And you go on and we'll look at just one more passage here. Verse 17, uh, Jesus is born. The shepherds go to Jesus. And verse 17, when they had seen them, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. This is the repeated theme that you see in the Christmas narrative, and it's the repeated theme that we tend not to emphasize around Christmas, unfortunately. They were amazed, they were awestruck, they were in fear, 
They were terrified. They were greatly troubled. They had seen the glory of God, and they didn't just stand up nice and straight. They fell to their knees at the one who alone is God. There's a sense of awe in the Christmas story, the sense even of fear at the presence of God, that God in his glory chose to descend on earth in its ordinary. Fear of God, we must say, is totally foreign to most people in our culture today. Wouldn't you agree? This idea of fear of God is totally foreign to most of us in the church today. Would you agree? Right? Could I get a show of hands if you agree with what I just said? It's totally foreign to most people in culture and also in the church. We really don't talk about it anymore to our detriment. Culture continues to talk about God. 90% of people in America, maybe even more, still continue to believe in God, some sort of God, and they continue to talk about God. The cultural movers and shakers talk about God. In each and every political cycle, you'll hear politicians talking about God and their projects and different ways they can manipulate God and the words of Scripture for their benefit. You hear plenty of Hollywood producers talking about God and about the spiritual world through TV shows like Touched by an Angel and Angels in the Outfield and God Friended Me. And you hear Will Ferrell talking about Sweet Baby Jesus and several titles that are certainly starring Morgan Freeman as God himself. And in none of those will you see any reverential fear at the awesome greatness of God, will you? So also in the church, we talk often about God's love and his grace and his kindness and even his sweet syrupy goodness. As we should. But we neglect to talk about the awesome holiness and the righteous fear of God. And so at Christmas, we tend to run toward the angels of Luke chapter 2, unafraid. And we run toward baby Jesus without pausing to consider that he is also the king of all who will reign forevermore, who will judge both the living and the dead, and he will consign some to heaven and others to hell. And he is the one who is the alpha and the omega, and amazingly from a manger, he is the incarnate God. He is fully God, and he is fully man. And as Colossians 1 says, he is holding all things together even from a manger. We should see a sense of awe falling over the church of God considering this story. Now, if I'm not careful, I will tend to approach the great holiness of God unaware. Like a toddler who goes up to an electrical outlet without concern or fear for its radiance and its pulsating heat and what it can do to me. So friends, I want to, in humility, talk with you a bit this morning about worshiping God at Christmas for who he actually is. And worship, I would say, is kind of like an old-fashioned fireplace. Anyone still have an old-fashioned fireplace? We have a newer home in Kearney, but we have an old-fashioned fireplace. I love it. 
And an old-fashioned fireplace needs to be kindled, and then it needs to be stoked, and then it needs to be maintained. And if it's maintained, it provides incredible warmth to several rooms, doesn't it? But if it's not maintained, then it cools down, and it dies out, and you better put the heat on. And so also worship, if it is maintained, provides incredible warmth to the human soul. It's meant to. It provides incredible warmth to the human body. It provides life and peace to us when we consistently worship. But we have to be inspired by a portrait of God to worship. What I'm not talking about this morning is raising your hands as you sing. I'm not talking about falling to your knees as you pray. Though those are good postures. And they're found everywhere in the Bible. For Germans and Swedes and blacks and whites and Palestinians and Israelites alike. This is really good. Now that may not be yours and that's okay. What's better than this is a heart that is doing that. A mind that is doing that. That says to God, I really want to worship you today as I go to work. That in the workplace, I will seek to love you with my mind. I will seek to love you with my hands, the way I serve other people at the workplace. I will seek to love you and worship you in that. That as I fall in prayer on a daily basis, as I begin my day with prayer, I surrender myself to my maker, my creator, who deserves worship. That as I listen to other people, I treat them as other people who are made in the image and likeness of God, and I might differ with them on a hundred different issues, but I still love them because I am worshiping God. And on and on, while we can go across all of life, I serve with excellence today because I'm worshiping. And the question is, how does the Christmas story help us to stoke the fireplace of worship again even this week, as this story seems to get a little bit routine for us, I want to suggest for you, though, this morning that can still stoke the fireplace of worship for us today and this week. Let me give you two ways. The first one is this. Worship of God is kindled with an appropriate fear of God. As I've already noted, worship of God is kindled. It gets going with an appropriate sense of God and his holiness, an appropriate fear of God. Fearlessness before man, listen to me here, fearlessness before man is a sign of deep faith. Fearlessness before God is not. Did you get that? Fearlessness before men and women is a sign of deep, robust and rich faith. It's a freedom-loving faith that I can, have free, I can have fearlessness before men and women because I belong to God. Fearlessness before God is just plain stupid. Okay? It's in ignorance or in arrogance that we walk toward God unafraid. Fear of God, I would argue, is the solution to fear of man. When Isaiah and Moses and Mary and the shepherds encountered the greatness of God, their knees buckled in awe and they fell down oftentimes in a prostrate position. It was Jesus who said, 
How is it that you can have fear of man who is able to kill the body? Why do you have fear of man who is only able to kill the body? But you do not have fear of God who is able to kill body and soul in hell. How is that, Jesus said? Like, we should really process that on a regular basis. We have no reason to ever fear man because the only thing that man or woman can ever do to us is only for our short 75 or 80 years here on earth. That's it. And we should expect that we will be opposed. We shouldn't get outraged about it. We will be opposed no matter who you are. The Bible says anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. Do not fear it. Expect it. But the solution to fear of man is an appropriate vertical fear of God. Horizontal fear of man is eliminated as we have a proper fear of God. This is why you see in the scripture, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The shepherds go into the presence of the glory of God, and they're terrified because they see him as he is. They have a vertical fear of God, which is appropriate. Let me just say this again. Fearlessness before God is either ignorant or it is arrogant. One or other, or it's both. It's either arrogance or ignorance when politicians of all stripes seek to manipulate God for their own reasons, and we should call them out for that. It's arrogance or it's ignorance when Hollywood personalities do as they did a number of years ago. There is this trend of Hollywood personalities going around Hollywood wearing t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. No, he ain't. No, he ain't. He's the miraculous son of God who will judge the living and the dead. It's arrogance or it's ignorance when some people and many other faiths, including some of the people that I love the most in the world, say things like, look within, you are the Buddha. Look within, you are the Christ. No way! I looked in the mirror this morning. There was nothing to worship, trust me. I looked inside my heart last night before bed. It's a dark, tangled mess. That won't inspire worship. What we need to get back to is a reverential sense of awe that God in his glory decided to descend. He climbed down a ladder from the highest heights of heavens to the dirt of Bethlehem and Nazareth and eventually to becoming an asylum seeker in Egypt to a poor, impoverished family to care for you and me. Why? to bridge a gulf caused by your sin and mine, which can only be bridged by God himself. Not in some abstract way, but in a very concrete way. I was and I am a sinner. And I needed God to come pay the ransom for that sin in order for the gulf to be bridged that I might come to a relationship with God and that causes awe and trembling in me. We need to get back to that. We need to get back to this feeling that God is, is, is awesome and worthy. I mean, way more than a feeling. The feeling is the wrong word. We need to get back to that conviction. 
that deep abiding belief that God is totally worthy of worship, that he is not to be trifled with, and that kindles the fires of worship once again. Here's what you can do. You can go read Psalm 145 or Psalm 150 tonight. You can read Revelation 1. You see a portrait of the glorious God as he is right now, Jesus as he is right now, and that will inspire worship. You can go out to the Platte River and stand on that beautiful bridge and watch the sunset. You can hold a newborn baby. You can go into the mountains. Ah. You can go out to the ocean and look at the expanse and feel something rising in you. This kindles, in appropriate sense, at the grandeur, amazement, and fear of God. Now, I don't know about you. If we just stay there, well, we'll be terrified, won't we? Fortunately, the Bible would not have us just stay there. Uh, you see this most wonderful conjunction. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, but, 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 verse 10, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. They were terrified, but the angel says, don't be afraid. You can stand. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. You see, the fires of worship may be kindled by an appropriate fear of God, but at least in my life, the fires of worship are stoked into a flame by the mercy of God. The fires of worship are stoked into a flame by a recognition of the great mercy of God to us that though we have all failed, every one of us, every one of us have failed and fallen short of the glory of God, that's everyone in this room and everyone on this stage, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet God in his great mercy comes to us and says to us, you need not be afraid. And this is what he says to the shepherds, of course, and the shepherds were not perfect men, they were ordinary men who were not clean, and they go to this hospital, I mean manger, and unclean as they were, perhaps they get to put their hands on baby Jesus. I don't know if Mary let them do that or not. But they're unclean, and there's no hand sanitizer at this hospital. And God in his mercy says, ordinary shepherds, you come to this hospital, and you can stand in the presence of incarnate God. And do not be afraid, because I have come to cleanse you as well. And you may be looked down upon by your culture, as shepherds were, but I look upon you with my love. Do not be afraid. It's this balance that we have to hold tight to at Christmas time. It's the kindness, it's the mercy, it's the graciousness of God, and it's also the severity, the power, the holiness of God. Romans eleven twenty two puts it this way: it says, "Consider then the kindness and the severity of God." It's both and; it's not either or. If you focus only on the kindness of God, then you won't be inspired to worship. You'll begin to think of God kind of like a jolly old Santa Claus. And that will not inspire worship. Very kind, very nice, but not worthy of worship. 
If you think of God only in his severity, then you'll begin to act like a Muslim who has constant fear of God, but has no sense of God's personal, intimate love for you individually by name. It's the mercy of God coupled with the severity of God that paints this beautiful portrait that leads us to worship God as he is. Here's a definition for mercy. Mercy is treating people better than they deserve. Say that out loud with me. Would you join me? Mercy is treating people better than they deserve. And this is what God does for us. On the cross, which begins with the manger. The manger is the first step to the cross. Christmas is the forerunner to Easter. You see a full portrait of the character of God at Christmas. And in his mercy, he says to the shepherds, I know you are terrified, but do not be afraid. And in his mercy, he would say to you, if you have embraced Christ as your Lord, as your King, you may be scared by the grandeur of my presence, but do not be afraid. You can stand because of my great mercy for you. I forgive you. I love you. I am for you. The mercy of God. Isn't it interesting that God calls us to love each other in the same way? To be merciful to one another? You're going to have an opportunity over these coming days with people in your family, I bet. Anybody? To treat people in your family better than they deserve. As God chose to treat us better than we deserve. One more passage here. The shepherds see this blinding light and they're terrified and they're told not to be afraid. And then the last scene in the story is uh, verse 16. It says, They hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, what'd they do? What'd they do? They spread the word. Did they keep it to themselves? Somebody shout no. Did they keep it to themselves? No, they spread the word. It's like the most natural thing to do. When they saw him, full of glory, full of grace, full of power, full of mercy, the alpha and the omega in this manger, they spread the word. Because a fired up worshiper cannot be contained. Those who get lit up in worship by the mercy of God, coupled with an appropriate fear of God, those who fall to their knees and say, woe is me, and they find that God looks at them and he says, fear not, and woe is me turns into fear not, those people turned into worshipers, and a fired up worshiper cannot be contained. The most natural thing for a fired up worshiper who's set ablaze by the glory of God is to go spread the word. So who is the one that you've been praying for across this fall that God is now whispering to you even right now 
that he would say to you, it is time that you take one of these little Christmas Eve invites and go spread the word to them and bring them to church this Christmas Eve because it's not about us, it's about those who have not yet heard. Who is it for you? That perhaps God would fill this place and the venue at 3 and 4.30 and at 6 o'clock and even an overflow service in our new chapel that more and more people would hear the good news of God's grace, that though he is glorious and powerful and awesome, yet even so he came incarnate son, baby Jesus, to bring life to all who would have him. Do I got any fired up worshipers with me in this room today? Come on. mercy of God to you by name he treats you better than you deserve the mercy of God when judgment was due isn't Christmas wonderful after all Father, we invite you to do a work in us over these next days. We invite you to pierce our hearts and prevent us from routine. We invite you to stoke the fireplace of worship in us yet again. Would you change us and renew us and give us a newfound vision of the glory of God at Christmas? Would you help us not to run toward this holiday unafraid, but that we would fear again the holiness of God. And we would sit in that. And then we would be stoked again by the forgiving, kind, loving mercy of God to us by name. We desire you and you only. All of this is for Jesus and in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.